Um, I am Nathan, the youth pastor here, um, and I'm excited to be continuing our teaching series through the season of Advent, which is walking through the genealogy of Jesus as given in the Gospel of Matthew. Genealogy is actually, the whole thing is written out right there on that sign. Of course, if you can read it, you have way better eyes than I do, but it is the thought that counts. It's all there. Uh, And uh, as a kind of a recap, normally in a genealogy like this, you would only see men's names. You'd only see father of or son of. And so the fact that Matthew included four women, five if you include Mary, the mother of Jesus, uh, is a reason to pause. And so we as a community are pausing and seeing what the stories of these women have to teach us about uh, who God is and the nature of God's kingdom, God's bigger story in this world, and how we are invited, uh, no matter where we are, to be part of it. And so with that, I will read our scripture for the morning, which is uh, about the woman Rahab in the Old Testament, uh, coming from the book of Joshua. So... Let us hear now the word of God. This is Joshua 2, beginning at verse 8. And right before this, uh, Rahab is introduced to two Israelite spies who she is hiding and protecting and saving their lives. Um, uh, And so this is a speech that she gives to the spies. Before the spies lay down for the night, Rahab went up on the roof and said to them, I know that the Lord has given you this land and that a great fear of you has fallen on us, so that all who live in this country are melting in fear because of you. We have heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea for you when you came out of Egypt, and what you did to Sihon and Og, the two kings, the Amorites, east of the Jordan, whom you completely destroyed. When we heard of it, our hearts melted with fear, and everyone's courage failed because of you, for the Lord your God is God in heaven above and on earth below. Now then, please swear to me by the Lord, that you will show kindness to my family because I have shown kindness to you. Give me a sure sign that you will spare the lives of my father and mother, my brothers and sisters, and all who belong to them, and that you will save us from death. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray as we prepare ourselves to hear the word this morning. Dear God, Christ, who came down to us in a manger, was the word made flesh, good news incarnate, God. I pray that you speak to each of us in this room this morning, that you give us a posture of openness to receive your word. For you have grafted us so generously into your family tree, God, all of us. And so uh, may we in this room hear you, no matter if we come into this room with, with joy and merriment and excitement for the season, or we come into this room carrying Grief and disappointment, overwhelm, stress. However we're in this room, God, cradle us in your loving hand and speak to us uh, as a loving parent speaks to their child. Pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So, Andrew Root, who is an author and theologian, in his book with subtitled Keeping Sacred Time Against the Speed of Modern Life, talks about how one of the most common features of kind of our contemporary life is what he calls acceleration. He he cites a bunch of psychologists and sociologists and philosophers about how, uh, especially in Western culture, there is this increasing demand to do more with less time. To do more with less time. And because of that, the pace of life just continues to increase. And so that our schedules are busier, are fuller, we have more to do uh, than folks did maybe 20 years ago, than maybe 50 years ago, than 100 years ago. 
And we could look at all the reasons for this or whatever, but I think that there's no better illustration of this than to just notice what people say when you say, how's it going? My guess, and I'm maybe going to ruin this question for you because you're not going to be able to not hear this now, but is that you're going to get some variation of people saying, oh, it's, it's good, it's good. It's just, it's just busy, right? And how many of us in this room, maybe, if we were to ask, how's it going, might also respond, no need to raise hands, but might also respond, good, just too busy. It's me. <laughs> it's many of us. Um, and this busyness only gets emphasized more during the holiday season, right? During between Thanksgiving and New Year's can just feel like a blur. The treadmill speeds up. It doesn't slow down. And yet, for us uh, following uh, the tradition of the Jesus way, we know that this is a season of Advent, a season of waiting and preparation, of being ready for Christ to break into the world, right? And so we have this tension where this could be a season marked by uh, by busyness and kind of moving from one thing to the next and also of wanting to be ready for God to encounter us in a new way. The story of Rahab that we're going to walk through together this morning shows us how to navigate this tension. Because Rahab ultimately uh, models this posture of openness to allow God to interrupt her life in a profound way. To interrupt her life to the point that she leaves behind what was normal for her, whatever her, her plans were, and to join in to God's bigger story. And so, uh, this morning we're going to look at the story of Rahab, and we're going to walk through how Rahab first believed in God's story, and then how Rahab was interrupted by God's story, and finally, how Rahab responded to God's story. So belief, interruption, and response. And the hope is that we leave here with a willingness to be like Rahab, to, to, to hold our lives with an open hand, to be willing to let go of our lives so that ultimately we will be able to find it in God's bigger story. So first, we're going to talk about how Rahab believed in God's story. So before we even meet Rahab on the page of the first page of the Bible, or not first page of the Bible, but uh, in Joshua 2, we know a couple things about Rahab. We know uh, that she's a Canaanite. She's described as a prostitute who lives in a house in the wall. But we also know that she has heard God's story. She's heard the story of the Israelites leaving uh, Israel, of the Red Sea opening up and God delivering them from enslavement. She actually quotes the song of Miriam back to the spies uh, of uh, Israel uh, in her speech. And we know that she's not the only one who has heard this story. There are, it appears, many people in Jericho who have heard the story of the Israelites who are coming to them, and yet she is come to faith through this story. She believes in the story. So much so that she says that this God of yours, God of Israel, is the God of heaven and of earth. A profound statement for someone in her day and age to make, where in the land of Cana especially, there would have been a God for every uh, people group, a God for every season, a God for every activity, right? Yet she says, your God is the God of heaven and of earth. And so she believes in God's story. And this work happens in her life before we even meet her. 
But I want to make a distinction here. What I'm not saying is just she simply just believed in God, but she believed in God's story because there's a difference there. Of course, believing in God is essential in order to believe in God's story, the kingdom of God. But believing in God is relatively easy when it comes to believing in God's story. And we live in a, in a time and a, a culture and a region specifically where there are plenty of well-meaning folks, right, who will say that they're spiritual but not religious, right? And part of that is that they'll, they're saying that they believe in a God. They believe in a higher power, something that's divine. They're, they're looking for something deeper. And so we see that it's easy to believe in God, but what does it mean to believe in God's story? That's a different thing. It's a more transformational thing. This uh, stood out in my own life because I was um, a service crew coordinator for um, a camp on the east side of Washington for a summer. When I was serving there, uh, I I have a couple people who served alongside me, actually, uh, in this room. Um, And I was serving there. I would lead this Bible study every week on uh, the Sermon on the Mount. Just Jesus talking about, you know, look at the lilies of the field and the birds of the air. Like, they don't worry and stress. And so you, seek first the kingdom of God, and all that you need will be given to you, right? Not all that you want, but all that you need. And so I led the same Bible study every week, and I had it down. It was a good Bible study, right? I had all, I could answer any question that came my way. I, I knew it inside and out. So I lead this wonderful Bible study about trusting in God and not stressing. And then... What would I go do? I would go and stress. And I would go and worry. And I'd be like, oh my gosh, are we going to be able to set up dinner in time? Did those students actually clean the bathrooms or am I going to have to do it again later? Aren't I supposed to be registering for classes? Like, I wish I could check my email. And halfway through the summer, the spirit really convicted me of this. Of like, Nathan, are you just saying these words or do you really believe these words, right? Because I could, I could tell all the right answers. I could say it. But was it part of who I was? And that is the difference of believing in a God's story. It's not just something you do or something that you say, you know, don't just sign at the bottom line of like, yeah, nod my head to that. No, it becomes part of who we are. And we live differently when this is the case. When we really internalize God's heart for peace and justice and joy in the world and hope, right? We will live differently We will live differently if we believe that God truly and deeply loves us, right? We'll live differently if we know that God is never going to give us up, never going to let us down, never going to turn around and desert us, right? We will live differently. I guarantee it. And so that's the first step that Rahab uh, does, is that she believes in God's story. And then... Rahab is interrupted by God's story. This is uh, kind of moving on to our second point here. So we don't know exactly why the spies went to Rahab's house, and scholars will go through a bunch of different arguments of like, maybe it's just Rahab's house. It's just where she lives. Maybe uh, it was something more like a a brothel, since she is described as a prostitute. Maybe uh, it's like a tavern, like the Prancing Pony in the Lord of the Rings, a place where, you know, for Lord of the Rings fans out there, uh, for where news from the outside city and inside the city would flow freely. And that's why she knows the story of the Israelites. That's why the Israelites would go there. We don't know exactly why the Israelites went there, but I can guarantee you this, that Rahab, the day that those Israelite spies knocked on her door, 
did not expect to see two Israelite men uh, at her doorstep. She probably opened the door, and then boom, this story that she had been uh, hearing and that she had come to belief about was right there in front of her. And she had a choice when she opened that door and saw those Israelite spies there. She could say, she could say yes to this interruption in her life, right? She could invite them in. She can uh, extend hospitality to them, eventually protect them. Or she can say no. She can look at all the things that she had already planned to do and say, you know what, I am not going to get tangled up in whatever these guys are about, right? I'm going to shut the door here. I'm going to eventually maybe even turn them in because we learn that the guards are searching for these Israelite men right after they come into the city, which in my own time with the story this week, um, I find it quite generous that the Bible describes these guys as spies. Because I don't know quite the, what the job description exactly is about being a spy, and I've never been a spy before, uh, which I know that's something that a spy would say. But <laughs> the, the fact that hours, literally not even one day after they enter the city of Jericho, there's a couple guards who are like, hey, king, do you want us to go get those Israelite guys at Rahab's house? Like, shouldn't you be sneaky? Like, I feel like that's not that hard. Um, and I hope that they found better vocations that fit their gifts later on. But um, this, all of this to say, because they're bad spies, the stakes are really raised high here, right? It's all the easier for Rahab to not let this interruption into her life, to say, okay, for sure, no, I'm not going to get entangled in this. And yet... She says yes. Why does she say yes to this interruption in her life? Well, it's because she embodies this posture of openness. We see kind of through the story of Rahab that she has this open-handed way that she holds her life. It's an invitation for all of us. And perhaps that open-handedness comes because we learn that Rahab, in many ways, is an outsider into her culture and her people. We know that she is a, an unmarried woman, woman in an overtly patriarchal society. That she's a prostitute, a profession that was probably not chosen, but was rather just forced upon her as one of the only ways that she could make a living, right? And we learn just geographically, she's living in the wall of Jericho, literally as far from the city center as she could get. She's on the outside. And because of that, maybe... That helps her embody this uh, posture of openness to this interruption in her life. And this is a, a, a trend that we actually see when Christ comes uh, as well. And Christ is healing and teaching in first century Israel. Because Christ goes about, and who are the kind of the, the crowd that gathers around Christ? It's the tax collectors and the lepers, the, the prostitutes, the blind, the lame. These are some of the societal outcasts of his time that are first to accept and receive the good news of who Christ is. And of course, who is slow to join? It's the Pharisees and the Sadducees, the Romans, the ones who are very invested in the way things are and keeping uh, the status quo as it is. Of course, Jesus has a parable where he warns about this exact thing. It's a parable of the great feast. He says that a, a master lays out a beautiful banquet for his guests. He sends out his servants with this invitation to the banquet. And what are the responses that the master first gets? Well, first person says, I, sorry, I cannot come. I just bought a field. Too busy. Can't be there. 
Next one says, I just bought some new oxen. Sorry, too busy. Can't be there. Third one said, I just got married. Sorry, too busy. Can't be there. And so the, the servants come back with all of this, these responses, and the master is disheartened and angry that all these people had said no to his invitation. So the master sends out the servants again and says, go into the streets and the alleys and invite in whoever will come. And at the table ends up being the, quote, poor and crippled and lame and blind. These are the people seated at the banquet. Notice, it is everybody got an invitation to this banquet, right? Everyone was invited. It wasn't like group A was supposed to be there, and then it ended up being group B, and one wasn't there. They were all invited. It's just that there was a posture of openness that came with this group that ended up being there, that they could say yes to the invitation. And that's what I really want uh, you to walk away with. It's not so much about one's social location as much as this posture of openness. Because we do have counterexamples. We have Nicodemus the Pharisee, right, who says yes to who Christ is. We have a centurion who is brought to faith. But Rahab shows us that it's this holding our life with an open hand, being willing to say, you know what? Like God's will be done, not my own. That allows her to say yes to this interruption when the spies knock on her door. And so we've seen that Rahab believes in God's story. Rahab is interrupted by God's story. And then Rahab responds to God's story. And so she hides the spies. She tells the guards to go looking elsewhere. And um, she's practically, she saves the spies' lives. She makes a deal with the spies. She says um, that she wants them to, to spare her and her family, right? And so the spies tell her that they surely will. And that what they'll do is that she'll tie a scarlet cord around her window when uh, the Israelite people make it to uh, Jericho. And that will symbolize this readiness for Rahab, that Rahab has gathered in all of her um, sisters and brothers, her mother and her father, everyone who is in her kind of circle of influence, everyone that she can save and is there. She'll tie this scarlet cord. The scarlet cord means a lot. Because uh, we later come to learn in Joshua 6 that the people of Israel do come to Jericho and they march with seven days without weapons around the walls and, and then the walls fall down. And yet, Rahab's house, which was in the wall, does not crumble. And Rahab's family does join the people of Israel. So Scarlet Cord, based, and, and the last thing we actually hear of her is in Joshua 6, 25, it says, and she lives among the Israelites to this day. In fact, she becomes such a central part of God's story unfolding in the people of Israel that she's included into Jesus' lineage, Jesus' family tree. And the scarlet cord uh, shows us perhaps, perhaps why. Because she was willing, just like the first disciples who are asked by Jesus to leave behind all that they are doing and follow who Christ is, she leaves behind her entire life. And that's what that scarlet cord represents that she's holding her life with an open hand, willing to jump into God's story when it was uh, at her doorstep. And the writers of the New Testament actually acknowledge this in Rahab. Rahab is uh, mentioned uh, 
twice more in the New Testament outside of just the lineage of Jesus and the Gospel of Matthew. She's mentioned in Hebrews chapter 11 when the author is going through all of these uh, people, these uh, who through their faith were moved into action. So Abraham and Moses and, uh, and all these folks. And the last person is Rahab, who is lifted up as someone who believed and then acted because of it. In the book of James, uh, similarly, James is talking about how faith without works is dead. And he lifts up two examples from the Old Testament. Who were they? Abraham and Rahab. And so, the authors of the New Testament see that Rahab uh, responded faithfully to this invitation that God had. And what a, what a powerful reminder as well, because Rahab was a Canaanite woman, not an Israelite. You know, one thing that we um, are, all of us in this room, in many ways, um, are, have experienced the grace of God through is that through Jesus, God's story broke open. It was no longer just uh, contained as the people of Israel as being a witness, but all were able to be grafted into the family tree of Jesus through faith. And through the story of Rahab, we actually see that this might not be that new of a thing after all. For Rahab, a Canaanite woman, through her faith, left behind her life and became part of God's story with the Israelite people walking through. So, Rahab believed in God's story. Rahab was interrupted by God's story. And Rahab responded to God's story. And now the question is, how can we do that, right? How does this work in our own lives? And I don't have a play-by-play, you know, way that this is going to work out. I wish I did. I wish I could be like, you know, uh, when your left elbow tingles, God's interrupting your story. You better say yes. Uh, But that's just not how it works. It's not that plain and simple. But I can tell you an example of my own life where God interrupted my story. So uh, my last semester of seminary, I had the opportunity to serve as a chaplain at Harborview Medical Center, which if you don't know, Harborview is a level one trauma center and also a county hospital. It was a very transformative time serving as a chaplain there. And each week, I would have a day shift and a night shift. And pretty you know, far into the program, I was arriving on a Friday night, which was my night shift. And I was getting the handoff from the day chaplains. I was like in my groove, right? I knew, knew what I was doing. And so I get the handoff. I take out my little notebook that I bring. And I write down like three patients' names that I'm going to go visit. And I head off down the hallway. And this is the night shift, right? So the hospital is super quiet. So I get into the elevator. I'm sitting there looking, and I press the button of who I'm going to go visit. And then I hear these footsteps of someone running, right? I look up, and a man calls out to me. He says, Are you, is that going to floor eight? And I'm like, I'm not going to floor eight, but the elevator's going up. So I reach out my hand, I stop the door. And this man runs in. He's disheveled, dressed in these eclectic clothes. He looks in distress, and he presses the eighth floor button and the, and the door closes. And I'm sitting there and I'm looking at this guy and I'm like, oh my gosh, I know this man. This man, who I'll just call Dave for our time here, was a patient who I had visited three days earlier. I was Chaplain Nathan at his bedside for about an hour. And here, in the 10 seconds that that elevator door was open, 
he ran into the same elevator with me. Just me and him right there. And so I say, I said, Dave? He looks at me, he's like, Chaplin? And we're like, kind of looking at each other like, what just happened? And then he starts to tell me the story that he, in the middle of a panic attack, had yelled at the nursing staff. He had got up out of his bed. He had left the hospital AMA against medical advice, right? And he had calmed down outside uh, in Seattle, which was not his home city. So he's in this strange city, and he calms down, and he, he comes to his senses. And so he's just re-entered the hospital and was trying to go and see if he could get back to the eighth floor so that he could apologize, so that he could see if he could be readmitted because he still had care needs that were needed to be taken care of. And he tells me all of this by the time that we get to whatever floor I'm supposed to get off of, right, for my first visit. And immediately I'm like, okay. I put down all of those visits, which those were important visits. There were, you know, very... Um, Serious situations that really could use a, a chaplain at them. But I recognize that God was interrupting my story. So I put down my list. And for the next hour and a half, I walk with Dave from the eighth floor to the second floor to the emergency room and just allow him to keep processing this whirlwind of a day and all the whirlwind of emotions that he's going through. And we do eventually get him readmitted so that he can get the care that he needs. And I'll never forget this. We're sitting in the ER room of Harborview, which is, this is like alpha COVID. So it's like total, you know, crazy procedures and stuff. And he says that our elevator meeting, the fact that in the 10 seconds that elevator door was open, he ran in and in that elevator was some, one of the only people that he had made a connection with in the city of Seattle, who was just sitting there standing. He says that the timing of this, quote, made him believe in God. And that he was sure that in his distress, God has sent one of his messengers to help him out. Now, I can tell you, I didn't feel like I was some godly messenger, right, when I'm walking down the hall and getting into that elevator. But I can tell you that God used that time powerfully, both uh, for this man's life, for Dave's life, and also in my life. But none of that would have happened if uh, I wouldn't have said yes to this interruption, to God taking what I had planned, my well-thought-out agenda for the evening, and just holding with an open hand and saying, you know what? I'm going to go along with what you got for me, God. And so, as we close here, I'm going to invite the band up. Um, And I have an invitation for all of us in this room. That invitation is that... uh, if you have something that's weighing on your heart, uh, maybe it's a way that you want God to interrupt your story this Advent season, a way that you want to encounter God. Maybe it's uh, a way that, maybe it's a story that's, that's heavy on your heart. Maybe it's um, something that you're grateful for even, and a story that comes to mind of when God interrupted your life in a, in a profoundly you know, a good way. I'll invite you to come up. We will have prayer ministers here, and I can invite the prayer team up as well during this time, uh, who would be happy to hear from you, to talk with you, and to pray for you. But I also have another invitation for you. And that invitation is that as you leave this room today, uh, there's going to be baskets of red threads that are going to be placed at uh, the exits of this room. 
And my invitation is that you take this red thread with you. Uh, and when you see this red thread, my invitation, I would suggest maybe tie it to your wrist for a week. You can maybe keep it in your pocket or keep it in your wallet. You can even tie it to the rearview mirror of your, or your car, whatever that might be. But that you'll be reminded of the scarlet cord that Rahab tied on her window when you see it. This willingness that Rahab embodied to say yes to God interrupting her story, of holding her life with an open hand. And that whenever you see that thread, that you too will think about holding your life with an open hand, being willing to let your life go so that you can find it in God's story. Let us now continue in worship. <laughs>